0: Good morning again and welcome to Grace Bible Church. Good morning. Good morning, Ricky and the rest of you. Well, again, we are we find ourselves, and we've just started in the past few weeks, we started this new series on our in Ephesians. Mysteries revealed in the church. Today, the title of my sermon is "The Sovereignty of God." I know that that is maybe not the most inventive sermon, but I, I just couldn't think of anything or sermon title. But I just couldn't think anything, of anything that fit better with what I was seeing in the text. I'm just going to preach this morning. Um, just, uh, just, really, just part of one verse. Let me pray for us and then we'll get started. Our Father and our God, we come to you again. We thank you this morning. We thank you, Lord, I think of that song we just sang. All I have is Christ. And I couldn't help but think, Lord, of the Apostle Paul. Couldn't help but think of his life after you, after you, appeared to him on the road to Damascus. The rest of his life, he could say all that he had was Christ. May that be said of us. May the same be said of my life and of the lives of those here today. We praise you and thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. Starting in verse 1, we're just going to read verses 1 and 2. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this morning, in the introduction... We're going to find that Paul emphasizes three extraordinary realities about God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in your outline, it's our Lord has always sovereignly chosen his pioneers, his people and his plan. Now just relax, my sermon became uh, much larger than I thought it was and when I started And we really are only going to hit uh, the first point this morning, we're going to speak of the Apostle Paul. Now, before we start, I've already kind of mentioned this, I want you to know that Paul intends for his readers to know that the sovereignty of God is the main theme of the first 14 verses of Ephesians. Sovereignty of God. I believe that we'll see this clearly even as we study this introductory statement. Throughout history, God has chosen to use men and women for His specific purposes and for His glory. He has chosen to use certain groups, and He has chosen to use certain individuals. As we saw earlier in Psalm 105, He made a great promise to a man named Abram, who was a pagan residing in a pagan land, among other pagans. God promised to make him a great nation... He promised to bless him and he promised to make his name great. Now, there was nothing, we want to make sure we don't mistake this, there was nothing about Abram, that is, there was nothing special about him except uh, that he was the least likely man to have been chosen by God for this task. By the way, he was 75 years old, his wife was barren, unable to have children. And yet, God promised to make him a great nation. And he wouldn't give Abram and Sarai their first child for many years, as he built and tested Abram's faith. There was another man named Moses. He grew up in the Egyptian court. He enjoyed the riches of Egypt for, the, for his first 40 years. But he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, And he chose to be ill-treated with the people of God instead of the passing pleasures of sin. And according to the writer of Hebrews, he considered the reproach of the Messiah to be greater than the treasures of Egypt. Why did he do this? Why did he choose this? Because God called him. He called him, God called him out of Egypt and he readied him for 40 years to lead God's people out of Egypt. Again, there was nothing special about Moses. As a matter of fact, he was slow of speech and tongue. He didn't speak very well, yet God gave him the task to pronounce judgment on Pharaoh and to lead the rebellious, the rebellious Israelites out of, out of Egypt. Why did God choose to use Moses for this specific task or purpose? For his glory so that we would not think that it had anything to do with Moses, but everything to do with the God who called him. The story of King David is in many ways the same as Abram and David's story. God sent Samuel to anoint David the next king of the people, after Saul. The Lord told Samuel not to look at his appearance or at the height of his stature. But God sees What man does not see, for God looks at the outward appearance. Or the inward, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart, that is. God chose David as his king, not because of his outward attributes, but because of his own sovereign choice. David was but a shepherd boy who was minding his own business. He had not even thought of being made king, and yet God chose him. He had nothing going for him outside of the fact that God chose him. Yet God did choose him, and God did use him for his glory. And he fashioned him through a profound set of trials which shaped David's life and readied him to be king. And the list goes on and on. In more modern times, we can see the stories of St. Augustine, and Martin Luther, and John Calvin, and others who God have been, has used for His purposes and His own glory. In our own day, we see God using uh, people for his, own, for his glory. Most of the time, many times, we don't see what God is doing. Yet God is still working in the lives of people by His sovereign hand, leading them to do His purpose and His will. God has always sovereignly chosen people whom He wants to use, and they are usually the least likely of people. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is, uh, is God's use of Rahab, a Gentile prostitute, to protect the Israelite slaves from certain destruction. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, her name prominently appears in the genealogy of our Lord, the Lord Jesus, along with another unlikely name, the name of Ruth. You see, God doesn't look to man to advise him on how he should accomplish his purposes. And he doesn't look to man on who he should use to accomplish his purposes. In Ephesians, in this first verse, we will see the theme of God's sovereign plan and choice. We'll see it throughout the letter to the Ephesians, actually. Starting in the introduction to his letter, Paul picks up on this theme of God's sovereign choice. In the introduction, again, Paul emphasizes three extraordinary realities about God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord has always, always first sovereignly chosen his pioneers. Now, I had to have a P word. I had to have a P word. I could have said apostles. I could have said the people who do his work, his will. I just called it his pioneers. Now, the last time I preached, I introduced the idea of the mysteries of God. We looked at the first two mysteries in the scriptures. We saw the mystery of God's redemptive plan. This is God's plan to redeem himself, for himself, a people for his own glory. From the beginning, God has progressively revealed his plan of redemption throughout history. From the time of man's fall in the garden, God's plan has always been to send his Redeemer, the Messiah. The Messiah. Old Testament saints look forward to this coming Messiah. We look, we look back, and we look forward also to his second coming. The Old Testament saints had, had faith that God would redeem them through the Messiah, and he progressively revealed more and more about the Messiah through Moses and the prophets. We learn from Moses that he would crush the serpent of old, the, 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 the serpent of old Satan. We learn from the prophets that this Messiah would come to suffer for the sake of His people. The Messiah, Jesus, was ultimately revealed in His incarnation, His coming as a babe in the manger. God sent His own Son to live in fulfillment of the law and the prophets and to suffer and die for the sins of the world. And we know from continuing revelation, and I've already mentioned, that He will return in power and in glory as the judge of this world that God's redemptive plan will come uh, to fruition. We also saw the, the mystery of God's redeemed people. We studied the God's use of Israel in His redemptive plan. We saw that God intended them to be a light to the nations. Ultimately, they failed to, to be that light that God called them to be. And while God has temporarily cut them off, I want to make sure I, I focus and that, that I... Emphasize temporarily cut them off for their disobedient disobedience. He is not done with them yet. He will fulfill his promises to Abraham, completely fulfill his promises to Abraham and to David, and his promise of a new covenant in Jeremiah thirty-one. And we believe, I believe, we believe that these these three covenants will find their ultimate fulfillment in Israel in the millennial kingdom, as described by the Apostle John in John or in Revelation nineteen. But in this age, what we found is that God is using the church to establish his kingdom on earth. Now, we don't see the church as the kingdom, they're not the same, but as an outpost of the coming kingdom which he promised. Ephesians, then, is a book that helps us understand what God is doing in the church, or with the church in this age. As such, I want you to understand that Ephesians is primarily about the church and not just about our salvation. Our salvation is part of it, right? Because we're part of the church. God has saved us and he has placed us in the church. So it's important that we understand our salvation, but primarily it's about what God is doing in his church. Now this brings us to the third part of that series. The mystery of God's redeemed preacher. Now I'm certain that you've noticed that we're starting here with a new outline. I've decided to hit the reset button because I want us to see that we've actually arrived at the text. The first two sermons were introductions to the text. This morning we have actually arrived in the text. But now that we've moved on from that outline though, I want you to keep this thought in the back of your mind as we look at the life of Paul today. There's a a certain mystery about how God uses certain people for his plan. I I think you can see that if if you look at the life of Abraham. Why did God use Abraham? Why did God use Moses? Why did God use David? Why did God use Rahab? Why did God use Ruth? There's a certain mystery about how God goes about these things that we don't fully understand and comprehend, at least at this point. But I want you to understand that God sovereignly, mysteriously chooses people to, to use people according to his will. And many of these are true pri- pioneers. We've mentioned Abraham, we mentioned David. And now we're going to look at the life of the amazing life of the Apostle Paul. So we're looking again at Paul the Apostle. So if you want to turn to Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 7. What I want you to understand this morning, beloved, is that God sovereignly chooses to use people. We may not completely understand why, except that it's for His purposes and His will and for His glory. In Acts chapter 7, it was a, a gruesome scene. As the stones piled up on Stephen, the blood which gave him life was now the blood of a mar- martyr. But in the words of Tertullian, the blood of martyrs is the seed of Christians. He had just finished, that would be Stephen, had just finished one of the most powerful sermons ever preached in the history of the world. He had had much practice in uh, defending the faith. In Acts chapter 6, verses 8-10, through 10, Stephen, it says Stephen was full of grace and power and was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But there were some that were opposing his preaching. According to the text in Acts chapter 6, uh, they were unable, these men who were opposing him were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit which he was speaking. The sermon he preached then as a defense before the San- Sanhedrin was so powerful that the preacher, Stephen, saw the heavens open and saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. His preaching was in retort to this accusation that he was speaking blasphemous words against the temple and against the law. The men accused him of saying that Jesus of Nazareth would destroy the temple and change the customs which Moses had given to them. Interestingly, interestingly, if you think about it, their accusations were, and in his defense parallel, the accusations and trials of our own Lord, of our Lord, that is. Now Stephen's sermon Stephen's sermon covered much ground. As we have done, he started with Abraham and the patriarchs, and he reminded them of God's covenant with Abraham, the promise of land, seed and blessing. Then he repeated the story of Joseph and the people's captivity in Egypt. He retold the account of Moses and how God used him, that is Moses, to lead the, the people out of Egypt into the wilderness. They were there for 40 years due to their rebellion. And he told them how that that generation had refused to submit to Moses and disobeyed God. And of that generation, he reminded them how they had made a golden calf and offered sacrifices to it and rejoiced in the works of their hands. And that God had gave them up to worship the host of heaven. And he said this about that generation. He said this in Acts chapter 7. Verse 42, As it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not me that that you offered victims and sacrifices forty years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god of Ramphah and the images which you made to worship. I also will remove you beyond Babylon. He brought Joshua to their minds and David and Solomon who built the temple. And of this temple, he says in 748, Acts 748, he says this, However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet said. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what places is there for my repose? In 750, was it not my hand which made all these things? You see, they claimed, those who were accusing Stephen claimed that the preacher was blaspheming the temple and the law, but they were blaspheming the God who made the temple and all these things. And then the preacher cried out, Stephen cried out, and said this in Acts 7.51, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit, Read this out of my. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous righteous, righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You, you who received the law as ordained by angels, and yet did not keep it. And at at this. At this, when they had heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at them. And they drove him out of that place and they cast him down and they began to rain stones on his body. You see, they never understood that God always wanted worship from the heart. He wanted men to worship him, men and women to worship him in spirit and truth. It was never about the temple. The law was intended to drive them to their knees as they came to understand their need for God's grace. You see, they thought that God could be confined to a temple made with hands intended to dwell in the heart. But he intended, that is, to dwell in the heart of men. And that was the point of Stephen's defense. They didn't get it. They didn't understand. They didn't understand what God wanted of them. God wanted their worship, their true worship. He wanted them to worship them in spirit and truth. He, didn't, he wasn't to be confined to a temple. Now, as this gruesome scene unwinds, and even as Stephen's blood soaked into the dust, there was a man named Saul, who was in hearty agreement with killing this man. Look at Acts 8 1. Saul, it says, was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. Look at verse 8-3, chapter 8-3, chapter chapter 8, verse 3. But Saul began ravaging the church entering house after house, dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison. So Saul, at this point, was a great defender of Judaism. He was a great defender of worship according to their way. And at that point, Saul saw saw the church as being a danger. And he began to destroy, began to systematically try to destroy the church. He was a ruthless man. He was a man to be feared. But ironically, in a major twist of fate, this man who shed the blood of Christians would himself become a Christian and a martyr. Paul's own blood would become the seed of the Gentile church. In a short while, After this, Jesus of Nazareth would appear to him as he was going to persecute the church. And he miraculously saved him and made made him his servant. God sovereignly chose to make Paul his apostle. The the stoning of Stephen, uh, the defense of Stephen and the stoning of, of Stephen formed a turning point for the church. You see, the church had originated in a Jewish context, but would have to separate itself from the legal requirements of Judaism. The break was necessary, but that break was a source of great conflict in the early church. Just think about the requirement of circumcision, right? We've all read that, the requirement of circumcision, and how that was a major issue within the church. That was what Acts 15 was about the the first Jerusalem the, the first council first church council in Jerusalem see the church had had originated in this Jewish context but they they needed to separate in order to take the gospel to the Gentiles and what's amazing is is that Paul formed this bridge or this man Saul God's choice of Paul the apostle as his vessel to take the gospel to the Gentiles, was a curious one for sure. Very curious. I think we'll see that if we look at some of the biographical information about this man named Paul. He was born, as we've said, Saul of, of Tarsus, on the southern coast of, of modern-day Turkey. He was a, a Roman citizen. Now, we don't know the exact date of his birth, but we do know that he was schooled as a Pharisee under the Jerusalem leader, uh, named G- Gamaliel. We also know that he became a persecutor of the church. We just saw that, and that he was miraculously converted to Christ. Now, after serving for many years as an apostle to the Gentiles, he died around 62 to 64, and he probably was martyred in Rome. Now let 's take a, a deep deeper look at the story of Paul through the lens of, of God or his conversion. Now, it's important to understand what we're getting at here. We're trying to understand why, why God used the Apostle Paul. Why this man? Why would God use this man to be the seed, to be the Apostle that is to the Gentiles? Now We just saw that, that Paul became a persecutor of the church and continued in this fashion for some time. Now turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Says this now, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that they, he, if he found anyone belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, let's stop right there. So, Paul was a blasphemer, he was breathing threats against the disciples of the Lord. He was no friend of the church, and he was no friend of the way. He was a man, again, to be feared. And Saul, then, God took the most unlikely man and used him for the most unlikely task. He took an impossible man, and he gave him an impossible task. According to Alan Redpath, He says this, when God wants to do an impossible task, He takes an impossible man and He crushes him. And that's exactly what He did with Paul. He took an impossible man and He crushed him. And this is just the type of man that God chooses to do His work. We saw it in the life of Abraham. We saw it in the life of Moses. We saw it in the life of David. Now look at, let's keep reading. Look at Acts chapter 9 verse 3. As he was traveling, it happened that it was as he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, I want you to notice that it is Jesus who is the one who directly appeared to Saul. And I want you to also notice that Jesus says, you are persecuting me. You may think that you're persecuting these, these, these people, but in reality, you're persecuting me. It's my body. Now, this is important. It's important to understand that Jesus appeared directly to Paul on many levels. It helps us understand the ministry of Paul. You see, the only way that Paul could have been the apostle to the Gentiles was to be, to be directly commissioned by the Lord Jesus. The only way Paul would have the only way Paul would have given up his life was for Jesus to miraculously save him. You see, Paul would have never changed outside of Christ changing him. Beloved, that is the way salvation works for all of us. We don't change of our own free will. According to Paul's theology, and my theology, the biblical theology, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. Dead men don't come alive of themselves. They don't decide to to wake up. You see... You can see how, then, Paul's conversion shaped his understanding of salvation. Now, you may not, you personally, may not have been saved in the spectacular fashion of Paul. But I want you to know that your salvation is no less of a miracle. As I've said on previous occasions, we don't struggle with God's sovereign choice to save men and women when we see those examples in the Bible, right? Uh, Abraham was minding his own business. We've said that. We don't struggle with that. We don't struggle with God's sovereign choice to choose Abraham. We don't struggle with God's sovereign choice to, to go through every brother until he got to David. We don't struggle with that. Oh, but when it comes to us, oh, I, I decided. I, I decided this. Beloved, that's not how it works. That's not what the Bible says. Let's keep going. Acts chapter 9, verse 6. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. So now Paul is helpless. Verse 9, he was there three days. He was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, Paul had, become, had come face to face with the glorified Christ. An, an encounter like that, I think you would agree, an encounter like that changes a man. Meeting face to face with the glorified Savior is bound to make for profound changes in the life of the man. And just like when Moses approached the burning bush completely changing his life's path, Paul's encounter with the Messiah completely changed the man in his direction. Completely changed him. Listen to this profound quote by Paul Washer. Listen to this. Paul the Apostle, his life was safe, his life was structured, his life was orderly, his life was religious, his life was going somewhere. He had a daytimer, And then Jesus showed up and everything was blown to pieces, living every day a risk, every day not knowing where he's going, every day just waiting to hear the next command. End quote. Later in life, Paul had this to say about his own conversion. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.12, he says this, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Verse 13, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our lord was more abundant with faith with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus that's a man who knew that's a man who understood right he understood who he is he understood what god had done in his life and he understood that outside of christ outside of the grace of our lord he would have not been the man that he was the man that spoke those words in 1st timothy 1 back at acts chapter 9 verse 10 now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. <laughs> what else would he say, right? <laughs> Here I am. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to a street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen a vision, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him that he might. Regain his sight, but Ananias answered, "Lord, I have heard from many about this man and how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem, and he is here, and he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name." Let me translate this for you. I know it's in English, but let me translate it. Lord, are you sure? I, I know you're sovereign and all, but this ain't right. You know, you can, you can sense the emotions in, in this man's words. In verse 15 it says this, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. It's interesting, he didn't say, Paul chose to follow me, right? I, I mean, I just want to emphasize that, that he is a chosen instrument of mine. If you serve the Lord, beloved, you are a chosen instrument of His. Ananias was no less a chosen instrument than Paul. He's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Oh, weird, huh? Maybe even a little mysterious. Why this guy? Why this way? So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying on his hands, laying his hands on him he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus notice Brother Saul. Well that, that changed quick, didn't it? Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there was something from his eyes, something like scales, and he fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and he got up and he was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. So Paul was put into service by the Lord for his service. And as evidenced by his statement in 1 Timothy 1, he would remain incredulous about this for the rest of his life. And we should be also. Now, I want you to ponder the importance of his conversion to the mission of the church. Listen to this quote by William Farrar. Listen to this, and I quote. It is impossible to exaggerate the importance of St. Paul's conversion as one of the evidences of Christianity. That he should have passed by one flesh of conviction, not only from darkness to light, but from one direction of life to the very opposite, is not only characteristic of the man, but evidential of the power and the significance of Christianity. The same man who just before was persecuting Christianity with the most violent hatred should come all at once to believe in him whose followers he had been seeking to destroy and that in this faith he should become a new creature. What is this but a victory which Christianity owed to nothing but the spell of its own inherent power?" Of all who have been converted to the faith of Christ, there is not one whose case the Christian principle broke so immediately through everything opposed to it and asserted so absolutely its triumphant superiority. Henceforth to Paul, and we have sung this earlier, henceforth to Paul, Christianity was summed up in one word, Christ. And we just sang, all I have is Christ this man who was completely against the lord completely against his church has now done a 180 he has gone from a persecutor and a blasphemer of the church to a man who is a servant of the lord back in acts 9:20 it's probably at this time that Paul traveled to Arabia and ministered there for a period of three years, according to Galatians 1.17. This is the area encompassing Damascus. And in Acts 9.20, it says, Immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. So he returned to Damascus and was preaching there. Again, Paul, the blasphemer, had become Paul the defender of the faith. And this is the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecy by Ananias in Acts twenty-two fifteen, For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. What he had seen and heard. He's seen the risen, the risen glorified Christ, resurrected Christ. Keep going in Acts chapter 9, verse 23. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. And they were also watching the, the gates day and night that they may put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an, an opening in the wall and lowering, lowering him in a large basket. And when he came to Jerusalem, verse 26, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but guess what? They were all afraid and not believing he was a disciple. Can you blame them? How could there be such a profound change in this man? Beloved, there is only one way. It was God's sovereign choice that changed him. It was God's sovereign choice to put him into service. It was God's sovereign choice then to bring a man named Barnabas to defend him. Look at the text. Acts chapter 9, verse 27. But Barnabas took a hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road. And that he talked to them to him, that is, and how at Damascus he spoke had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was moving and about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly, and he was arguing and talking with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were trying to put him to death. And in verse thirty, when the brethren learned it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. You see, God put Paul into service, but not in Jerusalem. God sent him to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, Cilicia which encompasses Tarsus, and he was preaching in that region for many years, for several years. He began to preach the gospel in those regions and had many conversions to Christ under his ministry. And when word of the revival in that area reached Jerusalem, the disciples again sent Barnabas to Antioch. And he went there to find Saul. According to Acts 11.26, it says this, And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Amazingly, from the time of Paul's conversion until the Jerusalem council of Acts 15, Paul only traveled to Jerusalem twice. Yet God sovereignly used him to plant Gentile churches outside of Judea. You see, when Paul was converted to Christianity, he was rejected by his people. He was forced to leave his former way of life because of his allegiance to Christ. But God sovereignly used this in his life to put him in a unique position of becoming the bridge between those who were rooted in Judea- Judaism and Gentiles. Paul, God even used Paul's Roman citizenship in many unique opportunities to preach the gospel. You see, God used every aspect of this man's life as he shaped Paul into the man he needed him to become. Now, there are many things that I'm sure that we'll learn about Paul's life and ministry. but I'm, And I'm certain we'll do this over the next few weeks and months. But here's what I want us to focus on today from the text. Just as the text says, back in Ephesians chapter 1, just as the, the text says, says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. In the New Testament, there are two types of apostles. There was the ones of extraordinary status and those of ordinary status. Those of extraordinary status were commissioned by the Lord to be or have the office of apostles. According to Acts 122 these men were to be eyewitnesses of the resurrected Messiah. This was the official title of the 12 disciples including Matthias who was commissioned in Acts 126. You see all of these men were eyewitnesses of a resurrected Jesus. They were chosen by God to lay the foundation of the church by preaching, teaching and writing scripture. Their ministry was accompanied then by signs and wonders of an apostle which proved their apostolic authority. This was also Paul's official title. As we have seen, Paul was directly commissioned by the Lord on the road to Damascus when he appeared to him. And Paul speaks of his apostleship in the same way as the other, in the same vein as the other apostles. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Beloved, Paul was an apostle by the will of God. This wasn't Paul's doing. This wasn't Barnabas' doing. This wasn't the rest of the apostles. They were afraid of him. You see, God made Paul an apostle. He is in the business of using the most unlikely of people to do his will and to carry out his plan. And beloved, this is exactly the reason why we can trust Paul. He could not have lived the life that he lived outside of the will of God. We can trust Paul because he was God's man. We can trust what he says because God chose him for this task. Listen to this quote by William Farrar again. Paul had heard again and again the proofs which satisfied Annas and Gamaliel that Jesus was a deceiver of the people. The events on which the apostles relied in proof of his his divinity had taken place in the in the full blaze of contemporary knowledge. What he's saying is, is that it's right there. They, he had lived it. He had been around. I keep going. He had, not, he had not to deal with uncertainties of criticism or assaults on authenticity. He could question not ancient documents, but living men. He could analyze not fragmentary records, but existing evidence. He had thousands of means close at hand whereby to test the reality or unreality of the resurrection and which, until this time, he had so passionately and contemptuously disbelieved. My tongue's not working very well. I guess I'm like Moses. In that way, anyway. In accepting, I keep, keep going, in, in accepting this half-crushed and holy, execrated faith he had everything in the world to lose. He had nothing conceivable to gain and yet in spite of all overwhelmed by a conviction he felt to be irresistible, Saul the Pharisee became a witness of the resurrection and a preacher of the cross. End quote. You get the guys you get his point? He had every reason Paul had every reason to disbelieve. Every reason, from a human perspective that is, to go a different direction. To live the life that he had been given. But he chose to go against it. He chose to go a completely opposite direction. Beloved, we can trust Paul. We can trust him. Now I had five lessons that we can learn from this but we'll just have to wait till next time to learn them but I trust that you are encouraged by the life of Paul that you're encouraged to know that God sovereignly chose this man and God sovereignly chose to use him to to plant the churches the Gentile churches and take the gospel to the Gentiles beloved we are only here because of the ministry of Paul We are only here because of the ministry of Paul. We are only here because Paul was made an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning again. I pray, if nothing else this morning, that those here, those who hear this, will see your sovereign hand. That you choose your servants. That you are the one who sovereignly chooses those who will carry out your plans. And even today, as we are here in this church, you are no less in control. You are no less carrying out your plans than you were in the life of Paul. We have been saved. We have been saved to glorify you. We have been saved to serve you. We have been saved to bring forth, to take forth the gospel to the nations. That's still the plan. A plan that hasn't changed from the beginning of time. We thank you and praise you for your goodness I pray, Lord, for this church that we would go forth and preach the gospel to the nations, even starting in Gainesville, starting here even this week. In Christ's name, amen.